Well, uh, as has been stated many times in our study of this great book of Hebrews, uh, the author to the Hebrews is fundamentally concerned that his audience would persevere in the faith by holding firm to the matchless Christ, the anchor of their souls. And holding on to Christ is something that is ever and always done through the instrument of faith. As described in the first few verses of Hebrews 11, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. As we've talked about the last couple of weeks, faith is how we see the unseen God. Faith is how we receive God's approval. And faith is how we live in the reality of his future promises. And the dominant question related to our faith must not be, is my faith strong enough? No, the real question is, who is my faith believing in? It's the object of our faith, not the strength of our faith, that is what truly matters. Now, this is our third of four Sundays in the chapter 11 of of Hebrews, a chapter all about faith. And this glorious chapter gives us the testimony of how the people of God in times past endured in faith, not shrinking back, but holding firm to the character of the unseen God and his future promises. These Old Testament people of faith are put forward as an example to us of what genuine faith looks like with the purpose of encouraging the original audience and us to hold on to Christ in a similar way. Now, with this backdrop in mind, let's turn to today's text, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 31. And if you're using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, you'll be on page 1008, which actually my Bible is also on page 1008. Let's read. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Well, risk, risk. There are courageous acts of calculated risk all over today's passage. And risk is more 
than just a long and repetitive three-hour board game that, as an adult, I don't really have the stomach to play anymore. We, we could define risk in a variety of ways. A situation involving exposure to danger. Something that brings the possibility of injury or loss. An increased likelihood of something bad happening. Or uncertainty about the effects or implications of an action with respect to a desired result or something valued. There are many examples of courage in the face of risk that we could draw from in our daily lives. Uh, The football player who fully extends on a pass over the middle in an attempt to obtain that crucial first down, knowing there's a safety waiting to unload on him the moment his hands touch the ball. Or the girl who comes to the aid of a fellow student who's being bullied, knowing that she might very well become the bully's new target. The employee who refuses to engage in the company's dishonest practices, knowing that such a choice will likely cost her the job. Or the firefighter who plunges into a building engulfed in flames with the hope of saving a missing child, knowing he might not come out alive. Now, all of these examples of courage involve both a risk and a reward. And in each case, the individual involved made a calculation that the potential negative cost that might result was worth the desired goal. And today, as we consider seven examples of faith from the life of Moses and those connected to him, we're going to see men and women whose faith infused them with courage to act in the face of tremendous risk. They were willing to suffer reproach and mistreatment because their hope was fixed on the invisible God and what he had promised. And this type of courageous faith is not just reserved for select Old Testament characters. No, it's the mark of all who identify with Christ. And in sharp contrast to these examples I gave, the hoped-for reward of the faithful Christian is not just possible. It's certain and assured. Now, as we look at this passage, uh, Moses is the predominant character in this section. And there was no man, a person of Jewish descent, would have revered more. In fact, from a Jewish perspective, Moses was the greatest of all men. He was, Israel, he was Israel's great prophet with whom God communicated directly. He was Israel's great lawgiver as virtually everything in their religion was set forth by him. He was Israel's great historian, the author of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. He was Israel's great saint. Scripture declares that he was the meekest man on earth. And he was Israel's great deliverer, the man used by God to lead the nation out of bondage in Egypt and through the Red Sea. But Moses doesn't loom large simply from a Jewish perspective, but from a Christian one as well. Moses is clearly put forward in Scripture as a type of Jesus Christ. In Deuteronomy 18, Moses declares a future time when God would raise up a prophet like himself to lead his people. In Acts 7, as Stephen gives his defense before the angry Jewish leaders, 
almost half his content is Moses. He cites Moses' words in Deuteronomy as pointing toward Christ, and then he uses the Israelites' rejection of Moses as a foreshadowing of their rejection of Jesus. The author to the Hebrews has already spoken of Moses at the outset of chapter 3, comparing Moses' faithfulness to God's house as a servant to the greater glory of Christ's faithfulness to God's house as a son. And in Hebrews 10, we see Moses meditating or mediating the old covenant between God and his people in a necessary and yet incomplete way through the blood of calves and goats, while Christ mediates the new covenant between God and his people in a perfect way through his own blood shed at the cross. Moses is no insignificant character. And as the original audience of this book was predominantly Jewish Christians, the figure of Moses would have loomed large on both fronts. But the author's intent here is not to draw attention to the greatness of Moses, but rather to draw our attention to the greatness of the faithful God who was the object of Moses' faith and his motivation for courageous action in the face of reproach and mistreatment. As I said before, this passage has seven by faith statements. And for the rest of our time today, we're going to consider how the conviction in the unseen person and promises of God results in courageous and potentially costly action in the face of opposition. For for saving faith does not shrink back when opposition arises, but acts courageously under the conviction that the reward of Christ is better than any earthly comfort or pleasure. Let's begin our time with the beginning of Moses' life. Uh, This first example of courageous faith that risks reproach and mistreatment is not Moses himself, but his parents, Amram and Jochebed. Moses' life was preserved by the costly faith of his parents. Now, most of us us are are familiar with the story in view here. The people of God, the descendants of Abraham, had moved to Egypt at the time of Joseph to escape a global famine. And over time, this small group of about 70 people were blessed by God, were fruitful and multiplied, and grew into a people numbering in the hundreds of thousands. Now, many years have passed, And we read in Exodus chapter 1 that a new king had come to power in Egypt who did not remember Joseph and the good he had brought to Egypt. He viewed this quickly multiplying Israelite nation as a threat and a blemish, enslaving them in harsh labor to construct his desired building projects. The people of God were under severe mistreatment, and yet they continued to bear children. The Pharaoh grew more and more fearful of this rapidly expanding people group, was afraid they would side with Egypt's enemies in the event of a war, and put into law a gruesome practice that would curb the propagation of the Israelite race, something that today we would describe as full-term abortion. Every Israelite male must be killed at birth. So into this scene, Moses is born. And upon emerging from the womb, he ought to have been instantly cast into the Nile to be drowned and devoured by crocodiles. And this would have been the safe and expedient thing for Moses' parents to do to preserve their own lives. 
But the text in Exodus 2 tells us his parents saw he was a fine child and hid him for three months. The author to the Hebrews cites that their reason for hiding Moses was because they saw he was beautiful. Now, in the context of Hebrews 11 and faith being the conviction of the unseen, this reference to Moses' beauty must be more than simply his physical appearance. And of course, Moses' parents would have thought him to be beautiful, right? Every parent thinks that their newborn child is beautiful, even if every other individual who looks at that newborn baby probably thinks he or she resembles more like an alien than an adorable replica of the parent. But, but, but something else than Moses' physical appearance had to be in view here. Uh, Stephen helps us in Acts 7.20, where he says, Moses' parents saw he was beautiful in God's sight. Uh, so in some way uh, that the text doesn't tell us, Amram and Jochebed were aware that God had a special purpose for their son. Uh, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, Moses' parents had received a vision from God prior to Moses' birth that he would be the deliverer of the Jewish nation. Now, the biblical text doesn't cite this occurrence, though it would be congruent with other famous deliverers prior to their birth in the story of Scripture. But we really don't need to speculate here. The point is this. God made it clear to this couple that he had a special plan for their newborn baby. And beyond the natural and good desire of a parent to preserve the life of their child, Moses' parents acted in faith to protect the son who was beautiful in God's sight. And consider the potential costliness of their faith from a human perspective. On the one hand, their choice to hide Moses for three months, if it had been found out, would have resulted in certain execution. But the text tells us their faith in the unseen God caused them not to fear the king's edict. Moreover, consider the absurdity of placing your newborn baby in a floating basket on the great Nile River. Now, the potential for the basket tipping over and the child, the child drowning is a very real threat, as is an Egyptian finding the baby, ascertaining that he was an Israelite, and killing him on the spot. Again, Moses' parents, as a result of their faith in the character and promise of the invisible God, acted in a way that could have cost them greatly. And it's likely that the author includes the story of faith because his readers were fearful of doing anything that would put them in the crosshairs of the governing Roman authorities who sanctioned Judaism as a tolerable religion, but persecuted Christians. They were tempted to keep the status quo as we are and do nothing that would draw unwanted attention to themselves or ourselves as being followers of Christ. Moses' parents are put forward as a tremendous example of doing what is right by faith, even when responding according to fear would have been natural to preserve their own well-being. And just as an important aside, note that the very thing that Moses is commended for later in our text, not fearing the king's anger, was initially ascribed to his parents who were not afraid of the king's edict. This is an important reminder to parents 
how our bold acts of faith in the face of reproach and mistreatment can be passed down to our children. Moses assuredly would have been made aware of his parents' courageous faith as he spent his early years in their home, a shining testimony of the costly faith he would later be called to. Well, our author's next illustration of faith, acting in spite of tremendous risk, involves Moses' choice to identify with the people of God in their affliction over the wealth, treasures, and pleasures of Egypt. As we read in Exodus 2, Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter as he floated along the Nile. She decides to take him in as her own son. And in the providence of God, she unknowingly hires Moses' mother to nurse the boy in his early years before later bringing him into the royal court as a prince of Egypt. There, Moses most assuredly would have received a top-notch education, comforts, and luxuries consistent with being in the palace of the world's foremost power of the day and access to unending worldly pleasure. From an earthly perspective, he had the good life. But as we read in Exodus 2, we watch an an incident unfold in which Moses makes a declaration of where his allegiances lie. Starting in verse 11 of Exodus 2, we read, One day, when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens and saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Now, this incident, which was recorded by Moses himself, is interesting in many ways. Notice that when he saw the Egyptian beating the Hebrew, the text adds, one of his people. So privately, Moses had already decided that He was not an Egyptian. He was a Hebrew. Though living in the lap of luxury as Egyptian royalty, an adopted son and prince of Egypt, he considered himself to belong to the people of God. And he acted on that identification in a bold way. Now, reflecting on his murder of the Egyptian, one commentator notes, such an action, even if mistaken in some respects, wasn't merely a fit of temper. It signaled where Moses' loyalties were, demonstrating he associated himself with the people of God, end quote. So while the hiding of the Egyptian in the sand might indicate that Moses was not quite ready to publicly identify with the oppressed people of God, someone observed the murder, and by the next day, it was known to all. Now, before this act, Moses had made a calculation of faith. It wasn't blind faith. It wasn't thoughtless faith. It was calculated faith. His faith was rooted in the reality of an unseen God who promised to reward his people. And as a result, Moses believed that being associated with the people of God, even if it meant severe affliction or death, was far more desirable than the fleeting pleasures of sin. And our author does not shy away from the fact that sin can be intensely pleasurable for a short while. But Moses' faith saw the advantage of being named among the oppressed and enslaved people of God as being far superior to the sinful pleasure from being named as Egyptian royalty. 
I think it's really important to understand this, that Moses' choice should not primarily be seen as an act of self-denial. No, he fully believed that the reproach he suffered for the sake of Christ was greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. He, he put the two options side by side, as it were, and considered the path of present affliction over pleasure, the scorn of Christ over the riches of Egypt. By comparison, he considered suffering for Christ to be the great reward and enjoying the comforts of this world to be no treasure at all. Now, what does the author mean when he says that Moses chose the reproach of Christ? Right? Christ isn't mentioned in this Exodus story, and yet the author to the Hebrews makes a seamless link between the mistreatment suffered by the Hebrew slaves to the suffering of reproach endured by the Messiah himself. And in one sense, there's a parallel between the people of God and Christ himself. In the New Testament, which must serve as our definitive interpreter of the old, God's people who are united to Christ by faith are called his body. Thus, suffering mistreatment with God's people is a sharing in the sufferings of Christ. The author may have been thinking on the end of Psalm 89, where the psalmist says, Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Anointed is the meaning of Christ. But in this psalm, it's not directly applied to Jesus himself, but rather to those associated with him as his people. And Jesus, in speaking to his disciples in the Gospels, right, makes no bones about the fact that to follow after him will mean following after him in suffering. So who would choose this kind of life? Well, as Charles Spurgeon noted, affliction nobody would choose. But affliction with the people of God, ah, that is another business altogether. Affliction with the people of God is affliction in glorious company. With the people of God, that is the sweet which kills the bitter of affliction, end quote. But in another sense, Moses' faith was faith in Jesus, uh, this truth is made plain as we go through the Gospels. When Nathanael brought Philip to meet Jesus, he said, We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth. Later, Jesus said to the Jews, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. And on the road with two disciples following his resurrection, Jesus said, Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things? And enter into his glory, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. While we are not told exactly what Moses knew about Jesus, this, must, this much is certain. Moses believed that God would send a savior to deliver his people. And while Moses himself was a type of this deliverance, he believed a greater deliverer was to come. And in this sense, the reproach that Moses brought upon himself by identifying with the people of God 
was the reproach of the future Messiah to whom he was united by faith. And as we think about Moses' calculation of faith to be identified with the people of God and their reproach, ultimately identifying with the reproach of Christ, it is really hard not to think about the passage from Philippians 3 that we reflected on earlier. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So, how do you identify yourself? And who do you identify with? Right? Self-identification is, is all the rage today where the pursuit of finding one's true identity and then living it out is seen by many as the highest good. And in our rapidly deteriorating culture, you can identify as whatever you desire. And in some circles, the more contrary to reality your identification, the more you're celebrated. But for those of us who know Christ by faith, the only identification that matters is our identification as a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a member of the people of God. But even in America, uh, the land of the free, identifying publicly as a Christian can bring the threat of harsh words, social exclusion, mockery, loss of job, or even legal action. The temptation to shrink back from identifying with Christ and his people is real. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but wouldn't it be easier just to put your head down, shut up, do the virtue signaling the world wants, and then just privately live out your faith? But I ask you to consider this question. What do you see as you look around you? Do you see possessions that you must have? Do you see pleasures that you must enjoy here and now? Do you see the reproach and mistreatment of God's people around the world and even here in our country and shrink back in fear, wanting no part of the sufferings of Christ? If this is you, then you don't have the faith of Moses and you shall have a very different reward. But oh, that our faith in the promised reward of Christ would make us ready and willing to risk reproach and mistreatment with the people of Christ for the joy of Christ. And as we move on in looking at the faith of Moses, we see faith that led to action involving tremendous risk. Again, we see Moses separating from the people of God for 40 years in the land of Midian. Now, it may seem strange that Moses' departure from Egypt after killing an Egyptian is categorized as being an act of faith, particularly in the statement that he was not afraid of the anger of the king. If we flip back to Moses' account of these events in Exodus chapter 2, we read, Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. 
So is there a problem here? Exodus tells us that Moses was afraid. The author to the Hebrews tells us that he wasn't. So, so which is it? I believe our preacher's point is this, that although Moses or anyone would have experienced natural fear over Pharaoh's wrath, his faith triumphed over his fear as the driving motivation in his departure from Egypt. His fear was not the dominating reality of his life. Faith in the invisible God was. Stephen's words regarding Moses in Acts 7, again, are very helpful. He says, When he, Moses, was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hands, but they did not understand. Do you see it? Stephen makes it clear that Moses believed himself to be God's deliverer at the time when he struck down the Egyptian. But his fellow Israelites did not understand. They did not have the eyes of faith. They were not ready to believe. So at a human level, Moses must have been extremely confused. He was God's deliverer. And yet now Pharaoh was seeking to kill him, and he had no choice but to flee the country. How would he be able to deliver God's people if he wasn't with God's people? This separation from Egypt required tremendous faith from Moses, for he continued to believe in God's plan of redemption for his enslaved brothers and sisters, even though it seemed to all be going wrong. But we're told he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So even when circumstances made no sense whatsoever, Moses pressed on in faith, believing in the unseen God's purposes and plans. And this endurance was not easy. It was long. It was grueling. It wasn't until 40 years later that God spoke to Moses from the burning bush and commanded him to return for the people of God. But what an encouragement this is. True faith holds on to unmet and unfulfilled promises of God, even if there is no movement towards such promises being fulfilled for years and years. Faith waits and waits and waits and waits with confidence for the faithful God to bring about his promises according to his timetable and in his way. Why? because of an assurance and a conviction in the God who exists and rewards those who seek him. And as we wrap up our consideration of Moses, we see courageous faith demonstrated by this former prince of Egypt in following the divine order to institute the Passover ritual with the nation of Israel. If we jump back in the Exodus account to chapters 11 and 12, we see that God has unleashed all manner of plagues and disasters on Egypt. He's asserted his greatness over the gods of Egypt and elevated Moses as his mighty servant. And yet, though the Egyptian nation is on the brink of ruin, Pharaoh's heart is hardened and he refuses to let the people go. The Lord then speaks to Moses and announces one final plague that he guarantees will cause Pharaoh to release God's chosen people. 
the death of all firstborn sons. The Lord himself would go through the land of Egypt at midnight and take the life of every firstborn male. The devastation would be comprehensive with none escaping the wrath of God. But God promised that this act of divine wrath would not touch the homes of his people should they be covered by the blood of an unblemished lamb. Listen to the Lord's own words describing this catastrophic event and what could be done to avoid it. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Leading the people in observing this Passover ritual was an act of faith on Moses' part. Uh, With the specter of this awful destruction looming before them, he trusted God's plan of both judgment and redemption. Like Noah in the flood and Abraham with Sodom and Gomorrah, Moses believed in God's means of delivering his people from his holy wrath. And Moses did not try to lead the people to salvation according to his own method or plan. No, he submitted to God's way of saving his people from certain death. Well, was this faith costly? In the case of the Israelites, it cost them an innocent lamb from the flock. And this lamb would have had some financial value to each family. But it's probably even more costly in the fact that they were asked to bring the lamb into their homes for a few days prior to slaying it, where a personal identification with the lamb may have been established before killing it and spreading its blood above and around the door. But more important than this, the Passover is put forward as one of the signature events of God's people in the Old Testament. And while the blood of a lamb from the flock caused the Israelite nation to be spared the wrath of God at this specific moment in time, it clearly foreshadows the cross work of Jesus Christ. Philip Hughes explains this connection well. He says, As the Passover lamb was required to be perfect and unblemished, and its sacrifice was the moment of the people's moving from bondage to liberty, so Christ is the fulfillment of all that was symbolized by this event. He is the lamb of God, our Passover lamb, whose precious redeeming blood is like that of a lamb without spot or blemish. And through his death, has destroyed the power of the devil, our spiritual Pharaoh, and delivered us from lifelong bondage, end quote. So this being true, faith's most decisive and important act is to lay hold of Christ as the Lamb of God to take away our sin and preserve us from the deserved and coming wrath of a holy God. We are saved the same way as Moses and the people of Israel. Should we escape the eternal judgment reserved for the enemies of God, we must be found under the blood, the blood of Jesus. And did this salvation come at a cost? Oh, yes, a cost that we can never fully comprehend. The father crushed his son 
allowing him to suffer unjustified reproach and mistreatment for our redemption, an act that we'll commemorate in a few moments as we come together at the Lord's table. Well, moving on in our passage, we see courageous faith attributed to the people of Israel in their faith to take God's path of deliverance through the Red Sea. Now, personally, I I find this commendation of faith especially stirring. For, For while Moses was not perfect, he was a man who experienced the glory and presence of God like none other. We're even told that the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to a friend. And it can be a temptation to look at Moses and be intimidated. Again, he was not perfect. He had moments of doubt. But he was the hero of Israel, a type of Christ, a friend of God. How can we possibly have faith like him? And the author to the Hebrews could very easily have done with this Red Sea account what he did with the Passover account and ascribe it to Moses, but he doesn't. He commends the faith of the people for walking through the Red Sea. And why is this significant? If we're honest, I think most of us identify much more readily with the frightened and faithless Israelites than with the bold and faithful Moses. If we flip back again to Exodus 14, we see this recently redeemed people standing at the brink of the Red Sea. There's this vast body of water before them and a vast army of Egyptian soldiers behind them. There's no way out. Certain doom awaits them. Go forward and be drowned. Go back and be slaughtered. And how did the Israelites respond in that moment of realization? Like many of us would, they groaned and they complained. Fear, not faith, was the basis for their words of complaint against the Lord. Well, why then are these people put forward as an example of courageous faith? We'll read on. Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. As their faith wavered, God sent them a message through his servant Moses. Stand firm in faith. Be silent. Watch me deliver you. Don't rely on your own assessment of the situation. Rely on me, the unseen God who has promised to work out your deliverance. And we all know what happens next. The presence of the Lord stood between the trapped Israelites and the Egyptian army, and he caused a a great wind to be stirred up that divided the waters of the Red Sea, creating a solid path on either side for them to walk through. Then in faith, the Israelites did what faith does. It moves forward, trusting the invisible God to do what he's promised Was this faith easy? Absolutely not. I can only imagine the uncertainty of walking on a path that was previously submerged a few moments before underwater with the same water piled up high to the right and to the left. And what if the Egyptian army broke through the cloud? The massacre would have been swift and final. The people would be trapped on this narrow path, nowhere to flee. But the Israelites stepped out in faith, in the promise of the faithful God to fight for them and deliver them. And he did. 
The Egyptian army is allowed to pursue the Israelites, but the waters collapsed upon them in judgment only after the Israelites had reached safety and salvation on the other side. And here's what I find so amazing. The author to the Hebrews has already detailed this rebellious and disobedient generation of Israelites as those who failed to enter God's promised rest through their hardness of heart, unbelief, and disobedience. Throughout the Torah story, this generation was oftentimes characterized by a lack of faith in God. And yet, in this situation, when God told them to move, they moved, and this constituted an act of commendable faith. And don't we all have moments of fear, complaints, and unbelief? Like the Israelites, we find ourselves in difficult circumstances, and we moan and complain, or at least I do, (laughs) wishing we could go back to the way that things used to be. Oh, how good it is to know that our God is faithful even when our faith is inconsistent and wavering. He meets us in our moments of discouragement and encourages us with his word. Then faith steps forward in simple obedience, regardless of past failure or present uncertainty, trusting God's promise to reward those who seek him. Now, not surprisingly, our preacher fast-forwards 40 years in Israel's story as the entire Exodus generation eventually perished in the desert for their persistent unbelief, with the exception of the faithful Joshua and Caleb. And here we see faith in God motivating the people's obedience to a very strange command. This new generation of Israelites, under the leadership of Joshua, has enjoyed some some great military victories on the edge of the land of promise. They've crossed through the Jordan River in a similar way to the crossing through the Red Sea, and now they stand on the brink of entry into the promised land. Before them, however, is this great walled fortress of Jericho, an impenetrable city filled with mighty warriors. And this could have been a moment of tremendous fear and shrinking back, especially when God's military strategy was revealed. March around the city once per day for six days, and then seven times on the seventh day, blow the trumpets and the walls will fall down. It's about as unconventional of a military strategy as it gets. What if the Amorites began raining down arrows from the ramparts as they marched? What if the enemy exploded from the gates during one of these strolls around the city and took the people by surprise? There had to be a more logical way than this. But the Israelites resolutely obeyed, regardless of the seeming insanity of the plan, and the walls came crashing down, just as their faithful God had promised. As one commentator notes, The sudden fall of Jericho's walls illustrates our preacher's point that the faith that pleases God takes action in response to God's word, even when visible circumstances make his commands seem foolish and his promises impossible, end quote. So I ask, in what ways might the word of God be calling you to move forward in the obedience of faith that may be deemed foolish by a watching world? Are you willing to obey God's word in faith, 
even if the means don't seem to be pointing toward his promised end? Do you trust the Lord to do what he's promised, even if his ways don't make sense to you? Well, last but certainly not least, we see the faith of Rahab that risked certain death to help the unknown spies belonging to the God of Israel. She repented from her former way of life and chose to align herself with the people of God. And oh, 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 how unlikely is this example of faith. Rahab was a prostitute, a woman who made her living through immorality. More than that, she was an Amorite, a nation steeped in pagan religion that God had commanded his people to utterly destroy. How did someone like this make the individual list of faith, of people displaying courageous and costly faith? Well, Joshua chapter 2 tells us that Rahab, along with the people of Jericho, had heard of God's tremendous acts of salvation on behalf of his people. But while the rest of her countrymen cowered in fear and trusted in the strength of their fortress to deliver them, Rahab chose to align herself with the God of the Israelites. She responded in faith to what she heard about this great God and chose to act in a courageous way to preserve the Israelite spies that Joshua had sent out to do recon work on the city of Jericho. And she risked more than reproach and mistreatment. The authorities in Jericho were aware that spies were within the city walls, and they had been tipped off to the fact that these spies had visited Rahab's home. Should her treason be discovered, instant execution would have been her reward but she kept the men hidden in the face of intense questioning and scrutiny for she was prepared to risk present danger for the sake of future salvation. And a short time later, her courageous faith was rewarded as Rahab and her family were the only residents of Jericho to escape God's judgment against her city. And let's not forget that Rahab was a prostitute a clear reminder that a sinful and sordid past does not prohibit one from enjoying God's promise of forgiveness and reward. It could be argued that Rahab is the climactic example of Hebrews 11. She represents someone whose faith perceived the unseen God, was, living to leave, was willing to leave her own society and culture and identify with the people of God at great personal risk and thus receive the promise of salvation. And Rahab models the repentance that is part of any conversion story, a turning from sin to lay hold of Christ by faith. And... Whether your name is Amram, Jochebed, Moses, Joshua, or Rahab, we must remember that faith that is commendable lays hold of the invisible God in his promise of reward and does not let go, come what may. The threat of reproach, mistreatment, and death are part and parcel for the people of God, and it's in a sense It's part of what you signed up for. But these risky realities of faith ought not detour 
the soul whose faith is rooted in the saving work of God through Jesus Christ. He is our great reward who suffered reproach, mistreatment, and death that we might have peace with God and enjoy a never-ending life of joyful fellowship with him. And faith that is real cannot help but be courageous in the faith, in the face of any cost. Because it's, this faith is anchored to Christ. This faith is infused by his power. And this faith is looking forward to his promise of eternal reward. Saving faith does not shrink back when opposition arises, but acts courageously under the conviction that the reward of Christ is far better than any earthly comfort or pleasure. Might we as a church be a church who constantly encourage one another that the risk of following Christ is always, always worth it. Let's pray. Father, uh, my prayer for us, again, is those words of Philippians chapter 3. That whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss compared because of the surpassing value and worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Might this be our attitude as your people. In Christ's name, amen.